I wanted to talk about a saying. It's a saying that's it's still pretty popular, um, and it's sort of ironic when you think about what it means and the people that use it. And the saying is, it's the gospel truth. Do you ever hear people say that? Say, it's the gospel truth. What do they mean by that? You can count on it. You can bank on it. It's absolutely true. It's unquestionable. It's certain, just like the gospel is. The gospel is one thing that we know for sure. It's historic. It's authenticated. It's true. It's unquestionable. And so if I say it's the gospel truth, you know I'm telling the truth. Problem is, a lot of people that use that don't believe in the gospel. So that's what makes it sort of ironic. But the gospel truth is really an important statement. And it ties into the new series we're beginning today in the book of Romans. Romans is one of the longest books. You know, it's interesting because a long letter is called an epistle. And even in those days, this was a long letter. 16 chapters in all, which is a long letter, and Paul is writing it, and what he's writing about is a lot of different things. There's a lot of different themes you can find in it, but there's one main theme that people agree on, and that is he's writing about the gospel. What is the truth of the gospel? What is it really all about? I mean, in short, in Greek, the word gospel is euangelion, and what it means is good news. The good news is about Jesus. And the good news that he brings is he tells us that we cannot get to heaven on our own because we are selfish, sinful human beings. So God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins in our place, rise from the grave, and if a person comes into a personal relationship with him by just surrendering their lives to him by grace through faith, then they become part of his kingdom. And they are empowered to live life here on earth, and they will live forever with him in heaven. That's good news. But it doesn't stop there because it's really the interpretation that Jesus gives on all of the Bible, starting back from the Old Testament and tying it all together. That's all the message of the gospel. And Paul will write about this for 16 chapters. That's a lot. And it's impactful. It's considered his masterpiece. Um, And it impacted the lives of people like Martin Luther and John Wesley, and they started great movements that have affected us even today from this book, one of the most famous books in the Bible. It's a long book. We're not going to do all of it all at once. We're going to take sections. So today we'll do an introduction, and then we're going to talk about the problem. Because, see, people had problems understanding this gospel and misunderstanding it. And we're going to talk about that for a while, and then we'll take a little break. But that's what we're going to be doing. So we're jumping into this really famous book, and I think there's some, just some great stuff there. Today we're going to look at Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Next week we'll go verses 18 through 32. And so when Mitch asked, did you read it? Hopefully you have, because it'll be good to prepare for it. So go ahead and read the rest of this chapter for next week. Let me read this chapter for this week, and we'll jump in to the gospel truth. We'll be talking about this is the gospel truth, because he's going to give an introduction of of what this is all about today. Chapter 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to be, belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, 
I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so we start off and we see that this is the gospel truth, and Paul is going to provide an introduction to the introduction. Verses 1 through 7, who is this guy, Paul? What's this all about? Now, some people, probably most people here know a little bit about Paul. Some people maybe don't know anything about Paul. So just a a brief overview, who is this guy, Paul? Paul is a guy who lives in the crossroads between the Gentiles or non-Jews and Jews or Judaism. Uh, Interesting guy. You know, his name is Paul, but in those days, if you were Hebrew, you would sometimes have two names. So you would be your Hebrew name. His Hebrew name was Saul. And his Greek name was Paul. He used to go by Saul, which was the first king of Israel. That was his first name. And he could trace his heritage all the way back to Benjamin, which is really uncommon in those days after so many wars and conquerings and they'd been defeated so many times. So it's like, how do they know this? But he could do that. He said he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I mean, he's about as Jewish as you could get. And yet, his father had somehow acquired Roman citizenship and he was raised in the port city of Tarsus, um, which is really, you know, in modern-day Turkey, hundreds of miles away from the Holy Land. He quotes poets and, prophet and, and poets and philosophers of the Greeks in the Bible, so he knew that stuff really well, and he talks a lot about entertainment from the, the, the uh, Roman world, especially athletics. In fact, so much so that many, and I kind of think that he may himself have been an athlete, running track and done some wrestling, because those are the things he talks about the most. So uh, wrestling made him a, a very particularly good guy, I guess. Um, <laughs> Some, some, have anybody here know that I used to wrestle? Uh, I miss you people. So anyway, but, so, so this is his background, but he, he's really bright, I mean brilliant, and so he gets into Harvard. But in those days, it's not called Harvard. In those days, you just went to one person. So he went to Rabbi Gamaliel. Not everybody got in there, but he did. And he studied under him, and he became a brilliant rabbi. And then he becomes this brilliant rabbi, and he runs into collision course with Christianity. He turns against it, becomes its first major persecutor. He takes people, he captures them, prisons them, puts them in prison, and then votes against them that they might die. He's a despicable human being. But then he has a supernatural encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, and he makes a 180-degree turn, and his whole life changes. And 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 this relationship with Jesus is so profound. And Jesus, you know, kind of laser beam says, I have a special task for you. You're going to be my apostle to the Gentiles. Now, the, the idea of an apostle is, is the difference of a disciple. Disciple is a follower. Jesus had 12 disciples, but then they became his 12 apostles, his 12 messengers. And so he grafts them in. You're going to be one of my messengers. You're going to talk to these people about, about me. 
And when we look at the Gentiles, he's perfectly suited for it. He's the guy that has to help. You know, Christianity is all Jewish. And so how does it transition? Now it's going to reach to the whole world. How do you make that transition? How do you understand it theologically? How do you orchestrate it practically? How do you do that? And Paul is entrusted to be the guy who leads the charge. And so he does that. And he becomes a great writer and a great speaker. And we are known, known best for his writing, a prolific writer about all these things that we're still learning today, that through the Holy Spirit, he was empowered using the gifts and abilities God gave him to pass this on down to us today. In his own day, he was best known as a missionary. He traveled especially throughout Turkey and Macedonia and Greek. At this time, he was in Corinth, probably having made his third trip. And this is about the year AD 57 that he's writing this. Paul is described outside of the Bible from some pretty, you know, I, I think authentic accounts as being a short, wiry man with bow legs, um, bald, with a large nose, a beard, and eyebrows that connected themselves. Um, but he was a dynamic speaker um, and personality. And so that's who Paul is. He was one of these guys that was neither hot nor cold. He was never cold, never hot. He was he was always hot. He was never cold. Let's get this right, guys. So he just, I mean, and, and right from the beginning, it says that he's a servant, which literally means he's a slave. He's not like, I kind of believe in Jesus Christ. He's my friend. I love Jesus. It's like, I'm a slave to him. He's my master. I'll do whatever he wants me to do. So we learned that from him right away. We learned that he's an apostle. We've already talked about that, that he's teaching the gospel of, of Jesus. But then this is interesting. He says, um, he promises beforehand through the, his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That means the Old Testament. Those are the Holy Scriptures, what we today call the Old Testament. What he's saying is, for, for thousands of years, God was, had veiled prophecies, over hundreds of them, hundreds, maybe even 300, some believe, all about Jesus and all about what was going to happen. God has been preparing us for this all along. He's going to tie the Old Testament to the New Testament together. That's, one of his, that's the job. That's one of the main jobs that Jesus gave him. Tie this all together for everybody. Help them all to see how this all fits. And he's going to especially address the Jewish people because why? What nationality were most of the Christians in Rome? Most of them were Jewish. It started with the Jews. So he's going to be addressing them and helping them to understand all this. And this will un unfold as time goes on. Now, he gets criticized in this. He gets flack because people say, you don't talk, he didn't talk enough about Jesus. Well, that's not his purpose. If you want to read Colossians, he'll tell you all about Jesus. He'll give you all the theology about Jesus. But he can't control himself. He has to talk about his master. So he has to just slip it in that Jesus was the, the descendant of King David and the rightful king of Israel, and he was a human being. And then in the very next phrase, he says he was also the son of God. So he was also divine. Do you understand what he just said in, 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 in one sentence? In one sentence, he says, Jesus is God and Jesus is man, 100% both. That's a lot. He just, he lets us know that. And he also tells us that there is God, the Father. He's talking about another God. And then he's talking about Jesus. And then he talks about the spirit of holiness. It's one God. But in Christianity, instead of having many gods or one, there's one God who presents himself in three persons, God the Son, God the, 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 the Father, and God the Holy Spirit, and he fits them all in. I mean, like in one, just a couple sentences, he's given us a whole theology message lesson. It's absolutely incredible. So he put, puts all that in just to give it in his introduction, 
And then he goes on to just say that he was called to be an apostle. It wasn't his choice. It was what God called him to do. And he gives a basic welcome, you know, emphasizing different. You know, in those days, like when we write a letter, we sign it at the, the end. Theirs was backwards. When they did a letter, they'd sign it at the beginning. And so he does all of his at the beginning. You know, I want to say I'm so happy to have all you guys here. This is exciting. Glad to have you on board. So, um, so that's basically what he says here at the beginning. And he emphasizes peace, you know, the peace that only comes from God, shalom, in, in Hebrew, the, the sense of contentment and fulfillment that you can only have with God. Paul wants us to know what this is all about. He doesn't want us to be confused. Recently, I um, heard a story about a lady that I know. She's been a Christian you know, all her life. And she was talking about how she really appreciates those that have died and are, and are Christians that are now her angels in heaven. And that's how she looks forward to being maybe an angel in heaven one day. And uh, she had to be corrected because, is that what the Bible teaches? The Bible does not teach that. This is the lady who's, who's been a Christian for years, and she's believing that. And it's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that angels predated Christ, uh, us as human beings. And, and the Bible teaches that angels have a very specific task from God. And the Bible teaches that when we die, we'll go to heaven, we'll worship God, we'll be with him and be preparing for, for the end, but, but not that we'll become angels. Now, this book doesn't talk much about angels, but my, my point of this illustration is that she got it all wrong. How could she be a follower of Christ for years and be teaching something like that? That's not what the Bible teaches. And yet we're going to look at some stuff over the next few weeks. Some of you may be surprised that it, you may think that you're following the Bible, but do you really know what the Bible is all about? Do you really know what you believe in? Paul thinks it's extremely important that we really, really know what we believe in and that we're not confused. And that's why this book has been written. And so he's going to give us the gospel truth. He's given us an introduction, and the next thing he does is he says that uh, he longs to proclaim this stuff. And he says, the first thing he says he wants to do, he longs to proclaim, he says, the first thing I want to do, and when he says first, um, it's a little confusing because he never says second. But what he's basically saying, I think, is, the first thing I want to talk about, what's most important to me, what I really, really want you to know is this. Um, I'm thankful for you. Do you ever say that to people? Did somebody say that to you this morning when you got up there? They say, I'm so, so glad to see you. Glad you're awake. Glad you, didn't tell you, glad you made it through the night. Um, man, I appreciate having you here. I love you. I mean, Paul was that kind of guy. I think he'd be, you know, I, I mean, I think he was a taskmaster in some ways, but I think he would be the kind of guy that would encourage you. Say, hey, I really appreciate you being in my life. He goes on to say, I'm, I, I pray for you. I can't stop praying for you because I love you so much. Now, there's a couple other things he says here that I think are interesting. I want to just stop here for one thing. He says, I thank my God. My God. Does God, could Paul have a different God than we have? Does he have a personal God that we don't have? Does we, are we missing something here? I don't think it's any different than me saying this is my town. Oakdale is my town. And you say, well, no, wait a minute. It's mine too. Well, that, obviously, it's, it's our town, but I can say this is my town, right? That's what Paul is saying. Now, I say that because later Paul will say the same thing about the gospel. He will say this is my gospel. And some people say, oh, he has a different gospel. No, he doesn't have a different gospel anymore than he has a different God. His God is our God. He's just saying, I buy into the same thing. We all have the same gospel. We all have the same God. I've mentioned that too because Romans is tricky. 
Paul, some think, was one of, it's been said he was probably one of the three most brilliant men who ever lived, especially in his field. He was that smart. And the Greek language can be used, some of those words can have double meaning. So Paul is writing this thing, and he's deep. And people will take this and they'll go, whoa, this is the deep book. I love this deep stuff. But understand that this, it, it's not supposed to trick us. It's not like the other Paul um, who, when you played the record backwards, they said, Paul is dead, Paul is dead. Remember that? And Paul McCartney in the old, old Beatle album? It's not like it's a secret message like that. The, the thing is, his intent is to make the gospel as clear and understandable and as simple as he can for us. So when people start trying to read too much into this, which they have through the years, I think they've, they've gone off into another place. They're, that's not what Paul wanted them to do. That wasn't his intent. It's difficult stuff, but it's not supposed to be that complicated. It's supposed to be as clear as possible. Difficult stuff can be complicated at times, but he's making it as clear as possible. So let's understand that. Now, he's seeing that some things are happening among these people already that he's really excited about, that he sees that the gospel is penetrating their lives. Um, it's interesting that Rome in Italy at that time was the capital of the Roman Empire, was the most strategic place on the planet, you know, for sharing the gospel, basically. And the history of Roman Christianity is fascinating. You go back, it goes back to Romans chapter, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 10, when the great apostle Peter got up in front of everybody on Pentecost Sunday and gave that magnificent message and welcomed people in, and it says that there were Roman Jews there. And they came forward, gave their lives to Christ, were baptized, stayed around, were discipled and trained by the others, apostles, and then they went back to Rome. And without even having a pastor, they just started getting together. They weren't so hung up on professionalism. They just started meeting together in Bible studies and so forth. The next thing you know, they had a church. So Paul, and this is kind of trippy, Paul goes to Corinth and he meets these people, Priscilla and Aquila, who become two of his closest friends, and he finds out that they're Jewish and they're from Rome, and he proceeds to, probably to tell them the gospel. And they say, oh, no, we've already heard that. We belong to the church in Rome. We became Christians there. Isn't that wild? And so Paul's like, whoa, this is, this is exciting. Something is happening in Rome that's really exciting. In fact, we have some other stories outside of the Bible. There's a story of a lady who was married to a high official, and she began believing in this superstitious new religion, which scholars believe was Christianity, and she was taken to court for it, and they cleared her. Paul probably didn't know that story, but we know it from scholarship today. So we know that Christianity had reached, already reached the higher echelons of the Roman government. Paul did know this story. In AD 49, about eight years before this book was written, um, Emperor Claudius, according to the historian at the time, the guy who recorded it, Suetonius, actually kicked all the Jews out of Rome for a season. They would come back. But why did he kick them out? Because they were disputing over a man called Crestus. If you change the E to an I, we realize that they probably didn't have his name right. It was Christus. They were disputing over Christ. So Rome was already on fire. And Paul is excited about what's going on there. He says he wants to impart a spiritual gift to them. It could be a formal spiritual gift, but Paul talks about spiritual gifts in a variety of ways. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience. In context here, he's talking about strengthening them and bringing them encouragement. So I believe the gift that he's giving them primarily is he says, let me give you the gift of strength and encouragement. And why don't you give it back to me? Isn't that cool? 
He doesn't go in and say, hey, I'm the main guy. I'm top dog here. I'll tell you what to do, and you do it. He says, I want to learn from you too. I'm going to tell you what I know, and you tell me what's been going on, because obviously some neat things have been going on there. Let's encourage each other. Isn't that cool? We should be able to encourage each other. It's good leadership skill. Um, he prays for them without stopping. Uh, he says he's wanted to go visit them, but just hasn't worked out. He's really wanted to visit them. In fact, later on, he says he wanted to use them, not only help them grow, but he wanted to use them as a headquarters, as a base to get to Spain. So, I mean, he's ambitious about getting to this place. Paul, Paul is fired up. He wants to be part of them. And it just never seems to work out. After he finishes this letter, he decides that he wants to go to two places. He has two places on his bucket list. Goes back to Jerusalem and then go to Rome. Well, ironically, he goes to Jerusalem and he gets arrested. But he appeals his case and they end up sending him to Rome. So he ends up going to Rome just like he wanted and just as he promised three years after this letter is written, but he goes under house arrest. Be careful how you pray. <laughs> he gets there. Okay, so he gets in there, and then he talks about something that is just right out of the pages of Oakdale. He talks about reaping a harvest at harvest time. And we have people in this church that are reaping their harvest right now. And they have diff different tools to reap that harvest, especially, you know, if, if you had almonds and now it's walnuts that they're shaking. And uh, they shake those things, and they get them down, Right? Paul is saying that he has a tool that will shake people's souls and make them different. And it's called the gospel. The gospel truth will shake your soul and it will change you as a person. And so that's what he's saying here. And then he, he goes on and he says it's for everybody. Uh, it's for Greeks and barbarians. Sometimes people say, well, what's the difference between a Greek and a Gentile? Uh, are they, and, and actually, it's, he's using it synonymous. It's almost the same. It's like saying somebody's British, but they're also English. Because the Greeks were so influenced in that culture because of Alexander the Great that a lot of times they would call a Greek person a Gentile. So, uh, but they were more educated. The barbarians would be the less educated and kind of the people on the fringes of society. Paul is, is eager to preach this. He can't wait to get on board and share this with other people. When I was a boy... My first sports hero was Willie Mays. You remember we used to sing, when the Giants hit the ball, it's bye-bye, baby. And that was their big song. Some of you remember that back in the 1960s. And, you know, and, and, we, and, and I love Willie Mays. And then Willie Mays went and he played for the New York Mets in his last year. And I, went to, I watched him play in the World Series. He actually had a good play in that series. But I remember him playing in the outfield and stumbling and falling and looking horrible. And it was the first time I was just a kid. And I thought, wow, why didn't he retire? He was so great, but now he's not, you know, and it's embarrassing. It's a little embarrassing watching him. Why is he hanging on? You know why he was hanging on? Pretty easy. He wanted to win the World Series. He had won a World Championship once before. He wanted to win one more. And often you'll hear that with the great athletes. The reason they're hanging on is not for money always, and fame. It's they want that one more championship. Have you ever won a championship? It's pretty exciting to win a championship. I've won some in Little League. Won some, we, we won as a team in wrestling. We weren't as good as a team here, but we won a couple, uh, a few championships. That was fun. You ever, you, sometimes you win at your team. You know, we have teams we root for. In the Bay Area, man, I, I think I, they were talking recently, I, I heard that our teams, our baseball, football, basketball teams, each of them have won three championships, three world championships. Did you know that? That's pretty impressive. 49ers won five. Um, one team has not. And they're leaving town. 
So that may be a good thing. Um, but, but anyway, you know, the, so, so, but it's kind of fun, isn't it? Even when, even when you're just rooting for them, it's fun. I'll tell you something more exciting than, than winning a championship. When I first committed my life to Christ, I told my family and friends about what had happened in my life. And a large number of them gave their lives to Jesus. We had a Bible study with like 20 people meeting in my home. That was the most exhilarating thing I've ever experienced. And I've had similar experiences through the years, but not on that largest scale. And I'm hanging around because I want to see that happen again. I want to see that happen again. I want to see people coming to know Christ in large numbers as people share their faith. God can do that. I mean, there were like 20 people that were just right away. And that was just in us alone. And, and I've seen, seen ministries. I had a ministry, one, you know, we had a ministry in college that just grew up to 50 people really quick, you know, and then we were gone. But I mean, you, you start seeing these things happen where, where people, and this is represented by people that are all giving their lives to Jesus. That's exhilarating. And Paul, he couldn't wait to see the next person cross the, the threshold to heaven. That's what he's living for. He's 57 years old. And he's still on fire because he, he wants that experience. He wants to know, he wants to see God at work in his life. He wants to do all he can with what God has given him and he wants to see what's going to happen and he wants to do it for God's glory. It gets him going and it should get us going too. And then he concludes it and he says that he's proud of the proclamation that he's made. Um, for is the first word here, and he, he leads us back to say, well, why is Paul long to tell us? Why is he so fired up about telling everybody about this? Why does he want to see people come to know Christ? Why is this so important? And, and he says, it's because it's something he's, he's proud of. It's something I'm proud of, he says. Well, why do we know he's proud of it? Because for being proud of something is the opposite of being ashamed of something. But, but why would anybody be ashamed of the gospel in the first place? Because the cross is the symbol of shame and defeat. And the Romans valued victory, conquest, conquering, power. And you do too. If we're honest, we like the guys who win, not the guys who lose. But Christianity is about sacrificing yourself for the sake of others. And that's what Jesus did. And so this rocked the world of the Romans. And many came to know Christ because of it, but most did not. And the rippling effects were already beginning because there were all these other religions, and the Christians said, no, we don't believe in those other religions, including the imperial cult where they worshipped former and present emperors, the present emperor being a nice guy named Nero. And soon they would turn against the Romans, and there would be horrific persecution just around the corner. And Paul says, I don't care what they say. I don't care what they do. I'm not ashamed of this gospel. I'm proud of it. I take pride in it. Why will you take pride in it? He goes on to explain. Good, you asked that question. He says, because it is the power of God for salvation. And it's a salvation that is offered not just to the Jewish people, as it was at first, but he wants it to be clear. It's something that's offered to anybody no matter what your background, race, whatever it is, this is offered for everybody. And the word salvation is interesting because when we talk about salvation, especially when we go to Ephesians, we see what did he save us from? He saved us from ourselves and our own sin. 
so that we might be able to have a life that's more fulfilling and more at peace and more at joy and, and be able to use our gifts and abilities for him. He saved us from this world. You, know, you wake up every morning and you wonder who got shot, what corrupt deal went down, what natural catastrophe took place, what are the problems in this world, right? We think about that, and he sa- he's going to save us from all of that. And he's going to save us from the devil who, as he's going down, is trying to take us down with him. He's going to make it certain that we won't be in hell, but we'll be in heaven. That's a lot to save us from. He uses the word power. In Greek, the word power is dunamis. Dynamite. Yeah, it means dynamite. It means to explode. Can you imagine exploding? You ever seen like a building exploded? They take an old building and they blow it up, and then they rebuild it, and they put it all together nice, and they re-landscape it. That's what God does for our souls when we give our lives to Jesus Christ. He blows up the old Ron, and then he puts it together. He rebuilds it, and he re-landscapes it, and makes it different. I talked to a guy who went to Carrie's family reunion yesterday, and I talked to a guy who basically was a structural engineer. He worked with concrete, and then strangely enough, he he shifted over to, to, um, to wood, and we were talking about all of that. And then in, in the midst of the conversation, he said, hey, you know, what I really want to talk about is my health is bad, and I know you're a pastor, and I want to talk to you about what happens when life ends. And we ended up having a nice conversation. I was able to pray for him and tell him the Bible to read and stuff um, because people, people are longing more than we realize. And here he was a structural engineer, but the soul, his own soul, I bet, I bet he did a good job. He did it for a long time. His buildings didn't fall apart, but his own soul was crumbling. And it needed to be blown up and rebuilt. And that's what God wants to do for each of us. And so it's nothing to be, prou- nothing to be afraid of, but something to be, be proud of, that God would do this for people. He transformed their lives. And then he gets technical on how this happens. And there's some different positions on this, um, but it all basically comes out in the wash. But Paul is talking about something that's very deep here and trying to make it as simple and as clear as possible. He talks about the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God, righteousness is a, is a forensic term. It means the same as justification. It's something you would use in a court of law. Think, guilty, innocent. You can bring cases against God, but they'll never stick. You can sue him, but it'll never work. He's like the Teflon man. Everything falls off because he's perfect. But when you bring cases against us, we don't fare so well. Um, even... In this world, I have gotten a number of tickets, driving tickets, a couple of them, maybe a little more. Maybe I didn't deserve any of them, right? But the judge disagrees. In every case, I'm told I've got to pay this ticket. Spiritually speaking, I may have 100 tickets a day. How do I pay those? I can't pay them. I need to go to hell, to prison in hell, because I can't pay my tickets. But the good news, and we'll see this as this book unfolds, is Jesus has paid the tickets. God sent his own son to die on the cross and rise from the grave so that technically he imputes his righteousness onto us so that we now become the Teflon man, that we now are God's children, and because we're his children, nothing sticks anymore eternally. He washes us clean, and we're in a relationship with him. God is giving his righteousness to us. He's offering us to be in that position where even though we don't deserve it, we can live with him forever like this in heaven. And you say, well, how do I do this, Ron? I want this. Maybe if I pray more, maybe if I do do the Ten Commandments, if I 
read my Bible, go to church, I'm nice to people. None of those things. What he says is the only thing you can do is receive this from faith. It's revealed from faith to faith. Faith to faith is the same as saying from faith, from, from faith unto faith or, or death unto death or life unto life. It's an emphasis on faith. It's like saying, let me say it a hundred times. It's only by faith. You can't do it on your own. All you can do is believe that he's done it. All you can do is fall on your face at his feet and say, I am yours. I take you. I want you as my own. I just give my life to you. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I am completely surrendered to you. And then God will give you that righteousness so that you can live with him forever in heaven and have his guidance in life. Isn't that a wonderful message? Now, he ties it in. Interestingly enough, he he ties it into the Old Testament here. In um, the very end here, in verse 3, he says, The righteous shall live by faith. And he's quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And Habakkuk, in, in the context, Habakkuk is complaining to God. And he's saying, God, you're unjust. God, you're inactive. Things aren't working out the way they're supposed to. And God says to him, the righteous shall live by faith. If you want to have righteousness, the kind of righteousness that you would have with God and live forever in heaven, you've got to believe and you've got to trust in it. The Old Testament really isn't that different from the New Testament. Did you know that? The Old Testament is simply saying, Messiah is coming to save us. Do you believe that? If you truly believe that, then I will give you my righteousness and you will come to live with me in heaven. Today, we're on this side in the New Testament saying, Messiah came. Do you believe that? We have more evidence than they do. Then trust in him. And so he ties it all together for us in, one, in just one paragraph. Isn't that incredible? So just brilliant how Paul writes and he puts these things together uh, for us. Um, you know, I think about this, and I just thought about this today, I think. Remember Jennifer? Jennifer um, Costanza. She was, a, she was a um, really nice lady. She worked for some in our children's ministry, I think, when I was a pastor. And she, she was actually a scientist, a brilliant young lady. Um, she worked for um, the Salk Institute, and she worked with monkeys, which is, and, and then she decided to become uh, a counselor. And I thought, well, that's a good connection. Um, so, um, but, but, so I, I, wrote, I, wrote her, um, I wrote her reference. But I was thinking about her, and I remember talking to her about the Salk Institute and the history behind it and all, and going back to Jonas Salk. And, and I thought, you know, Jonas Salk, he found the cure for polio. What if he said... I don't want to do this because if I bring this up, I'm going to get all sorts of criticisms and people are going to give me flack and stuff like that. What if he did that? I'm not going to share this with anybody. This, I'm, this is going to be a big pain. I'll just take care of my own family. You know, not only did he do it, but he tried it on himself first. He was sacrificial. When you find something, you have the cure to cancer or something like that. Why don't you share that with people, right? If you don't share that, that's, that's the most cruel thing you could possibly do. And you think of people like that. I mean, he was willing. He not only found this, but he was willing to die for it to help other people. Well, that will help people live physically, but that's not going to help them live eternally. Even if they get over polio, even if they get over cancer, they're going to die. So we have something 
that will save them forever and transform their lives. Why would we not want to share it? Why would we in any way be ashamed of it? So let's think of a couple things that Paul has here. He says, how will you respond to the gospel? Now, if you haven't heard this before, you've heard it again. And if, uh, if you haven't heard it before, you've heard it. And this is the first time you've heard it. But if you have heard it before, you've heard it again. Um, if you haven't heard it, I, I just want you to understand, again, that coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ is not something you can do on your own. That you can only surrender your life to him based on what Jesus did for you. And if you haven't done that, please come and talk to us about it. If you have, I encourage you to live all out for Jesus. Um, I remember years ago, my daughter and I went on a zip line in Whistler, um, British Columbia. So we were up thousands and thousands of miles up in the air. I mean, we were way, way up there. And it was a little scary. But by faith, believe it, it was by faith I decided to do this thing. I looked around and I said, I know this is secure. I can see the evidence. But it's a little bit of a risk. But I went out and I did it. And man, it was incredible. I saw things I've never seen before in my life. It was just beautiful. And it was an exhilarating experience. I have found in many ways the Christian life is much like that. If you live for Jesus Christ, don't expect it to be easy. Christian life is not for the faint of heart. It really isn't. I think it's harder than living the non-Christian life. Because you care more. Because you make sacrifices. Because it hurts you when you see people don't respond to go to heaven. At the same time, it's so exhilarating. So exciting. And as you trust God and step off in faith to believe Him for big things, it's absolutely amazing what He will do. Life will go from black and white to color. You see people come into His kingdom. You'll see people grow in their relationship with Him. You'll see yourself grow in your relationship with Him. And you just wonder, how, how did I never experience this before? Powerful things. So I encourage you to just live all out in your faith for Christ. But the second thing I'd ask you is, is who are you telling? Who are you telling? When I raised that question of who are you telling, one of the things that popped into my mind is the fires we've had recently. Remember the campfire last year? How brutal that was. It, it leveled paradise. Thankful Doug was there fighting that and other guys doing the best they could. But what can you do when it's that devastating? Um, we had the Santa Rosa fires. Remember before that? And, and, and Kurt and I watched that on television. Remember, that was horrifying. We watched it on the television in Berlin in a hotel room. Um, and... I, Carrie and I just met some people, that, a pastor and his wife, that lived in Santa Rosa. So I asked them, how did you do in the fire? We lost our home. We don't think about that kind of stuff. We lost our home. It got burned down in the fire. Um, boy, I'm glad we haven't had a fire in Oakdale, aren't you? Well, yeah, we did. We lost some golf carts, right? Yeah. <laughs> On the Atlas? Okay. Um, but, but if you really had a big devastating fire, we really haven't. Physically speaking, right? But spiritually speaking, look, think of it this way. Spiritually speaking, most of the houses in this community and beyond are on fire. Spiritually speaking, they're on fire. We have a, we have a major fire going on in this town. And how many of you are willing to run into the houses and save their lives? That's the passion Paul has. How many of you are willing to be embarrassed and tell another person that you know Jesus so that other people can go to heaven with you and can experience the joy that he's given you here? 
That's a challenge God has before us. How many of the people in your life, you can't reach everybody, and a lot of people will choose not to come. That's their choice. But you give them the opportunity. You just tell them. You have about at least 8 to 15 people in your life that you see regularly at home, at school, at work, you know, in the neighborhood that keep coming across your path. Do they know that you know Jesus? Have you ever told them how you came to know Jesus? You ever told them what the gospel teaches? Have you ever told them, you know, that you care for them and done nice things for them and so forth and gotten involved and become their friend? Have you ever invited them here to church? These are serious matters, and, and we need to, need to take it really seriously um, because from a spiritual perspective, things are not in a good place. And Paul understood that, and that's why he was so passionate about uh, his, the importance of sharing the gospel truth. So this is the gospel truth, and you can believe it. And the reason you can believe it is because it comes from Christ. In fact, I would say the things that we've talked about today and the things that we're going to talk about are not really a message. The gospel is not really a message. Truthfully, the, mos- the gospel is the message. It's the message about a man who came to earth to save our lives because he was indeed the unique God-man. And, and all this is really the, the gospel and Romans is really just all about Jesus Christ. And we're going to take communion in just a little bit. So hang on to those thoughts that uh, Jesus is really what this is all about, is knowing him personally and living for him. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much as we transition into taking the Lord's Supper. Um, we're just grateful for Paul and the message that you gave him and the introduction that we have uh, to talk today about um, probably the greatest book that he wrote. Uh, and we pray that you would work in each of our lives and help us to be more passionate. The main thing is that we'd be more passionate about our faith today and you encourage us in that regard. And we, we pray that if there's anybody that doesn't know you, that they would come to know you today. Amen.